Welcome to Maximal Being, a GI doc and ICU nurse that break down the science so you can exceed your gut health, nutrition and fitness goals. So, let's smash the bro science and optimizing your health with your hosts, Doc Mock and R.N. Graham. What's going on, Maximal Beings? It's Doc Mock here with Maximal Being Fitness, Nutrition and Gut Health. We're already on podcast number eight. This is going to be a great one. Um, as usual, I'm your host, Doc Mock. I'm an advanced GI doctor here in Cleveland, Ohio. That's a uh, doctor in GI that uh, specializes in fancy procedures related to cancer, along with uh, gut health and nutrition. Our topic today, you know, you may be listening to this while you're walking or running on a treadmill, and I'm so happy that you're out there and that you're moving. But there may be a better way for you to move in terms of efficiency of your time. And what we're going to do today is talk about that efficiency termed EPOC, or exercise, ex excess post-exercise oxygen consumption. Uh, with me today is uh, oh, the guy that, uh, the only one that you want watching you while you're sleeping. Um, I am happy to have him in my corner when I'm doing my procedures. He is an anesthetist. I've never heard anybody that understands physiology better than this man. And without further ado, take it away. Dex Z. Hello, all you maximal beings. I'm extremely excited to be a part of this. And uh, I think that Doc Mock and RN Graham are doing a wonderful job. Uh, I think these podcasts are really uh, headed in a direction that's going to do a lot of good in the world and getting the word out there. A um, little bit about myself. Uh, Doc Mock and I, as he said, work together um, uh, on some days of the week. We see each other quite often. Um, I'm an anesthetist. I work in a Cleveland hospital and have been doing anesthesia. I've been practicing for about 18 years. Um, a little bit about my background. Um, come from a fairly large family, an uh, immigrant family that uh, came from Europe in the 70s. And uh, my mother and father are happily living here in Cleveland as well. Uh, I have an Older brother that's in California, wonderful two children and a wife that's very supportive uh, and uh, very excited that um, becoming a part of this uh, journey with Doc Mock and Aaron Graham. Uh, a little bit about my journey. Uh, I started doing a lot of things surrounding the areas of health and wellness in my 20s. Uh, I think that's when I did a majority of my. Uh, kind of soul searching and uh, finding out a little bit more about which area I wanted to explore and learning a lot about um, things in the wellness arena. Um, very excited. I'm, I'm actually working on a website called The Pursuit of Healthy. Uh, this summer it should be completed and, and ready, to ready to roar. So I'm pretty excited about that. Um, I believe in real health. To make a long story short, uh, the reason I'm here today um, I think that Doc Mock and I have a very common perception of what real health is. Um, you'll find a lot of information in this age of information we live in. We live in a wonderful time. There's certainly easy access to uh, being able to Google anything you can think of in health and wellness. And although it's very exciting, there's some very excellent information out there and some excellent studies and science-backed information. There's also a lot of poor information out there, and it can lead you uh, to some very unsafe habits. So guidance, I think, is a huge part of um, what we are in this arena for. And Doc Mock and I believe in uh, many of these common um, avenues to real health. And today, I'm very excited to be talking about EPOC, and we'll do some discussion on HIIT training and um, what this all means and making some sense of it. A lot of the science can be confusing. We'll, we, let us sort through that for you. Um, we are both, uh, with our backgrounds, um, deep in the mix of science-backed nutrition, uh, fitness, sleep, all the pillars of health. And uh, I believe that you know, you'll find some really good information, not only on this podcast, but as you saw on Maxwell Being website. Some excellent stuff out there. I believe in all of it. I think it's all really good stuff. Uh, I think you can trust it, which in this day and age is a big deal. Um, my schooling, um, I also um, had education that was pre-med. I went the anesthesia route. I, I got my master's degree in 
biochemistry at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio. And I also did a uh, two-year laboratory uh, research period on the Human Genome Project before studying anesthesia. I took a lot of anatomy, physiology, studied a lot of science. So I like to read the journals, just like Doc Mock does. I'll let him take it away. Uh, We'll give you some good information. I'm very excited to be here, and thank you all for listening. Yeah, you know, uh, every day that I work with Dexy, we just commiserate and talk about all these wonderful sort of topics. So I figured having him on the podcast would be just the next step in our discussion and and let you all be a fly on the wall. Um, we term Dexy the hit grandmaster or high intensity interval training grandmaster, and he has designed some wonderful programs. We've seen great uh, success with those programs and our clients. Um, And for those of you also that have uh, supported us thus far on our journey, we appreciate it. Go ahead and hit the subscribe button if you've not done so already. And for all of of those of you that have commented, thank you so much and gratitude for the positive comments. So without further ado, diving into EPOC. Before we start talking about EPOC itself, Dexy, I thought it was important for us to define some physiologic terms for those of us out there that haven't uh, brushed up on our cardiovascular physiology. The first term of these things is termed VO2 max. And VO2 max is a metric of oxygen consumption. um, And this occurs both during exercise and during the restful period as well. And kind of the delta or the area under the curve is is what EPOC is. And it's that energy that continues to be consumed. But for for everybody out there, Dexy, tell Mm -hmm. us a little bit about VO2 max and, and, you know, what are normal values and how we measure VO2 max. Absolutely. So let's just uh, take a quick, um, taking the science portion of it really quickly, just for uh, any of the people out there that may not have a huge science background, but are very interested in their fitness. Uh, VO2 max is an excellent indicator of your overall fitness. Um, And as Doc Mock mentioned, it's a probably the best indicator of our cardiovascular fitness because of the fact that it measures maximal oxygen consumption. So how well your body, how efficiently can you maximally utilize oxygen? So the question becomes, how do you measure it? Measuring VO2 max um, accurately is done in a laboratory. Um, We can't do it any better than that in terms of doing it for the layperson on your watch or a wearable. And you might say to yourself, well, wait a minute, I see it on my Apple Watch, or I see it on my Garmin Watch, or any other watch or wearable that you have. There are many, many out there, and we live in a great time being able to measure all these biometrics. Um, Those are great numbers to have. They are estimates. Um, So let's talk a little bit about that just for a moment. Um, Let me rewind to uh, going to the exercise physiology lab. What someone would do for you, an exercise physiologist would take you, put you on a treadmill or a bicycle or any high-intensity um, routine would work, get anywhere where you're able to get your heart rate to its maximum output, okay? And a heart rate max is what we're talking about, pushing yourself to the limit. Um, and under the guidance of a medical professional, obviously this could be unsafe for some people who are not in good uh, physical condition. Essentially, they put a mask on you. They make you bust out as fast or run as fast as hard as you can or bike as fast as hard as you can, and they measure how uh, how your breathing rate and how the oxygen consumption that you're breathing into the mask, um, along with other um, numbers in the formula, including your heart rate, they will estimate the maximal oxygen consumption at that peak that you are at when you're at your highest level and you are not able to go any faster or farther. So make a long story short, that's done in the lab. And that's going to be the accurate way to get your VO2 max. Um, So you might ask, well, why do they put it on our fitness wearables then? Is that useful at all? Yes, it is. Um, I'm very excited about this time that we live in. I love fitness wearables. I think they have a huge place in uh, fitness. I think that the biometrics are getting better. better. They're improving. You might have noticed the Apple Watches of every generation are getting better and better at this. Um, They can even indicate when you're having arrhythmias and things like this. But as far as VO2 max... Uh, that number is an estimate, and they use things like your resting heart rate, heart rate variability, and they can estimate that number pretty well and, and decide what your overall fitness level is. Um, the ranges they give you are probably ballpark-ish. The great thing about them and what I like is 
they will provide you with trends. So in other words, if your VO2 max is 45 and your guy who's in his 40s, uh, that's a pretty good VO2 max. And the way you can look at a good VO2 max for a female, 35-ish is probably the mid-range. You know, I think um, Doc Mock mentioned it between 32 and 38 or somewhere in that, depending on what you read, these are some ranges. 45 for a guy, that's really good physical condition. Um, you get the higher um, numbers than that, and you're actually entering the excellent range. The most elite athletes in the world, and the highest numbers you'll see are in the 80s for men and the 70s for women. Um, cross-country skiers are amongst our most cardiovascularly fit in the world athletes, as well as cyclists. So um, these numbers, uh, you know, that we look at and that we train by can be very useful. Um, you don't have to think that, uh, well, if it's not accurate, I'm not using it. It has its usefulness. Part of his motivation, which we will talk about, I'm sure, in some future podcasts and some great topics on the website as well. Um, I think motivation is key for everybody. You know, how do we do this long term? This is not a short game that we're playing. We're in it for the long haul. Everybody should be. That's our goal is to try to make all the maximal beings in it for the long haul. The more people we get on board, I think the more people that can really see the benefits of everything we're doing. Yeah. So, so just to clarify, uh, Dexy, yeah. you, you can breathe okay and oxygenate wearing a mask. Is that is that right? You you sure can, and on a oh, daily basis, okay. I, I kind of prove this. You know. Yeah, yeah. I think we both. When do. I'm putting you to sleep and I'm putting a mask on your face, you know, you see a lot of people take some big breaths and look kind of concerned at first, like, yeah, like, am I going to suffocate under here? But yeah, you can breathe pretty well with the mask on. Right. <laughs> Maybe exactly. not the masks we're wearing lately, but. Hopefully yeah. that'll go away at some point in public, right? But you won't desaturate with those masks either. But but I think you bring up a lot of good points, and these data and these numbers that Dexy is pointing out are based upon a meta-analysis of over 158 different studies where they looked at the mean VO2 max for healthy young men and women. What they found, again, just to reiterate, for healthy young men, around 42 to 46 was a good VO2 max, and for women, around 33 to 36. And elite athletes around, you know, as high as 70s to 80s. I know personally, you know, my surrogate marker VO2 max is in the 50s. So I'm definitely not elite, but at least I know what I'm doing a few times. Impressive, Schaefer. I'm, I'm, I'm impressed. Thank you. Um, I have great motivators like yourself, you know, behind me for sure. Um, Excellent. Yes. The next thing I wanted to discuss is, you know, so so we measure VO2 max. We get these values and the area between right. the two is that that epoch. What is occurring during this time period of epoch that is so important for for our health goals? Okay, yeah, and, and epoch is a, a wonderful thing. This is something that um, really came to the forefront, especially with uh, things like HIT training, which we're going to talk about our high intensity interval training, um, and um, you know, playing with the intensities, especially elite athletes. I think when this first started back in the early 90s um, and we'll talk about some of this later on the podcast i'd be excited to share it with you i have a pretty good story about a japanese guy named tabata which you probably heard about but um uh, epoch is an important element of fitness and why do we care about it so first of all what is it um doc mark um, mentioned that it's called exercise i'm sorry excess post-exercise oxygen consumption Okay, so the, that's what the acronym stands for. And in the name, obviously, um, it's talking about the consumption of oxygen after you're done working out. So after you've hit it hard in the gym, you know, it's very interesting what happens to the human body in that next, not only hour, but it can be as much as two days later. Um, and I think different studies say it differently, you know, some up to 36 hours, some 48 at the longest. Um, uh, basically, there are two phases to epoch. There is a rapid phase of decline initially, which lasts about an hour up to the first hour at the most usually. And there is a slow phase of decline, which prolongs this post-exercise oxygen consumption. And that, that's the part that really can uh, do some great things. And when great things are actually happening in the human body. So let's talk about that rapid phase first. Um, there are some things going like uh, phosphogen resynthesis um, that has to do with one of the energy systems of the body. Um, I could really nerd out on this stuff, but I won't bore you too much. 
Um, we'll talk about the three energy systems of the body later, and I'll just touch on it briefly. But some other things that are happening in that first rapid fl- phase of oxygen um, consumption um, decline is um, the removal of oxi- the removal and oxidation of built up lactate. Lactate we all know builds up in the muscle when you work it hard. That burn it's lactate, so lactic acid, um, and reloading of the hemoglobin and myoglobin. Uh, with oxygen occurs in this rapid phase as well. Uh, in the second phase, in the slower phase, which an- starts at about uh, almost an hour after this rapid phase of decline, um, thermal regulation is going on. Your body's getting back to its uh, meta- basal metabolic core temperature. Things like you know your ventilation is getting back to baseline levels. Your heart rate is getting back to baseline levels. Sometimes you'll notice after a hard workout, your heart rate doesn't decrease right away. And for people that are more fit, this happens more quickly. And that has a lot to do with important physiological changes that are happening. Um, there are many hormone, residual hormonal, hormonal effects that are occurring in that slow phase. There's also um, tissue repair, um, oxygen, uh, glycogen replenishment, replenishment of glycogen in your muscle, in your liver. Um, these are all very important elements of EPOC. And all of them require a higher basal metabolic rate. So what does that mean for the layperson? Why do we care about this science? It sounds pretty complicated. I might have had some people rolling their eyes that don't want to listen to this stuff. Well, the, make a long story short, the exciting part of all this, why is this so good for you? And you guys are going to love this. It, it, this part of exercise or HIIT training or anything intense that happens, in the, think of it as a furnace. And when you stoke that furnace when you're working out, guess what? Even if you take a shower and you are sitting on the couch after that workout, you are still burning calories at a higher rate than you would be normally. For all of these processes to occur, your body has to keep working to replenish those stores, to get the hormones back to a homeostatic level or a balanced level that the body enjoys. So that's the important part of EPOC. That's why we care about it, why science is so fixed on saying, hey, is this really good for us? And study after study is being done trying to make sure that this is, hey, is this something that's really good for us? Is it really happening? Is it true? Well, there's a lot of encouraging data that's pretty awesome, not only cohort studies, but uh, clinical trials that look really good. So, you know, this is stuff you can believe in. You know, when you really hit it hard, there's a big reward, you know, in that aftermath when the body repairs itself. And I'll leave it back to you, Doc Mack, for the next, uh, where you want to go with this. We can go so many ways. So, yeah, at the core of all these processes is something called anabolism. Anabolism is your body's ability to take uh, simple molecules and make more complex molecules out of it. So bringing of together of things. So breaking down muscle and rebuilding that muscle back up to a stronger, more unified metric. And on the same lines, you also get reinnervation of tissues, right? So you form new neural networks that go to those tissues so that you're able to jump rope faster or, or more times. So with that, um, that epoch, you mentioned something about lactic acid. And sure. this is actually a highly controversial area with epoch. Some people believe that lactic acid is a part of the picture, but also there's a lot of research that shows that, that lactic acid production is independent of epoch and really has to do with the way that the muscles are firing, both in aerobic and anaerobic metabolism. Mm-hmm. But but the next thing, you know, you touched on this briefly is how long does this happen? And that and and again, there's a study by Shunke from 2002 that showed that uh, as, as high as up to 38 to 48 hours after the process, you're still seeing a breakdown of fat. What what cellular processes are we talking about specifically, Dexy, that are occurring mm-hmm. during this epoch phase to help mobilize fat stores? Oh, okay. So you're talking about uh, fat. So utilization of fat during exercise. So that's, you know, a massive topic. Let's face it. Most people that exercise, why did they exercise? I had a very interesting uh, interview with a master personal trainer from one of the big fitness clubs in Cleveland. And my first question to her is, why do people come to you? And she said, hands down, it's body image. People want to look better. Well, what makes us look better? Everybody wants to lose, shed the fat, shed the pounds. You know, why do we have these increase in uh, gym memberships every year after New Year's? So New Year's resolution, the top one every year is to get in the gym, right? So all of us want to look better. We want to burn the fat. 
um, when we stoke the furnace, like I was talking about earlier, and you're doing these uh, high intensity workouts and you create an environment where you are still burning calories even after the workout is over at a higher level than you would with your basal metabolic rate, which is what your body sustains itself with. Your body uses calories all day long, even when you're not working hard, just to sustain bodily functions, thinking, uh, any type of movement, the heart rate, everything. So when we talk about fat burning um, and what happens uh, during EPOC, um, there really is a lot of evidence that shows that this fat burning is actually higher than a steady state of aerobic exercise. So let's let's dissect that for a moment. Uh, let's say you go out for a run one day and you run for 45 minutes and you're running at a pretty comfortable pace. I mean, for you and you're working pretty hard, you feel like, and after that 45 minutes, you feel pretty spent. You didn't, you never pushed it to a place where you couldn't run, uh, you know, any faster. And then you kind of slow down because you push it so hard. Whereas you parallel that with someone who maybe did a hit workout where they literally did it in a fraction of the time. And we'll talk about one of the attract, why is hit attractive later? But at the same time, you pushed it to a very high level, and maybe you worked out with a heart rate monitor, and you worked out in 90% of your max heart rate, and you did it for two minutes, and you rested for two minutes, and you did cycles of that, and you were all done in 20 minutes and half the time that the runner was done with his run, and you both sit down on the couch afterward. Well, what do the studies tell us? What does the science tell us about fat burning for both of those people? If they are the same person and they eat the same things during the day, and they have the same body composition, and they do this workout one way or another way. So what is the difference? Is the fat burning better with when you're in an EPOC state? All the studies show that it is. Um, what's happening with um, oxidization of fat cells with in the EPOC um, time frame after that workout is much greater turning to fat catabolism and fat utilization for energy for increased energy than it would be for a runner who had just done steady state cardio for that 45 minutes now is that steady state cardio bad for you absolutely not all that all fitness is good for the body it it does uh benefits it, it creates benefits to the body in different ways the the part about epoch that i love is the efficiency so when you put in, you know, very maximal effort for a short period of time, it seems that the human body does things better in terms of, you, you mentioned neurogenesis, you know, BDNF is a, one of the factors that's released from both, uh, not only in the brain, but in the skeletal muscle is delivered all throughout the body. Um, you know, the repair of the muscle, all of these things occur better with EPOC than they do with um, regular training where you don't have as an intensive an epoch phase afterwards. And that's maybe a good way to explain it. It's a very complicated picture in terms of fat burning. Um, we're not even going to touch nutrition in this talk. Eating after a workout and what, how that affects this recovery phase is a big deal. Recovery, whether it's active or static, is a big deal. Um, how do you recover and how does that impact epoch? Well, those are all big questions. And they're out of the scope of this talk. But as far as fat burning, um, it's far superior. It happens in a far superior and more efficient manner with EPOC than with regular uh, recovery from um, uh, moderate intensity activity. It's a good way to put it. Yeah. So we pulled some studies back in the 1990s where they showed mm -hmm. that high intensity interval training was one of the best way, the biggest of which was from Purdue in 1992. And this yeah, was a large study. Yeah, where they, where they evaluated aerobic exercise as compared to high-intensity interval training, and they found that the output of energy, or EPOC, was higher with the high-intensity interval training group as compared to the sustained aerobic group. Now, there actually was just a study that came out recently this year, which looked at moderate continuous aerobic versus sprint intervals and high-intensity interval training, and they found that sprint intervals was, was good, but hit was slightly better without a significant difference between the two. So you're right. Uh, I'm with you. You know, Dex Z and I both work a lot of hours at the hospital. 
especially now with coronavirus floating around. And the last thing we want to do when we come home is not make good use of our time. We have so many other things to do, so many other uh, people and loved ones that we like to share our time with. And so making a good use of your time with high-intensity interval training is a great way to get to those body composition goals, which Dexy hit on is probably the most common reason. What what yeah. about weightlifting, Dexy? I mean, does weightlifting have any impact on? Yeah, so so that's a great question. So resistance training, let's talk about where that fits in with this. This is uh, I just want to rewind for a second about, um, and, it, and it directly relates to that question. Uh, let's talk a little bit about um, now that we're kind of uh, touching on types of training and and hit training and resistance training. Um, how could so? When we talk about hit training, uh, in what ways can you do hit? Hit is in 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 its essence high intensity activity. Um, there are many ways to do it high intensity activity. You can do it with equipment. You could do it without equipment. You can do it with your own body weight. You can get up right now off your chair and do a hit workout with a four by four area right on your own floor. Um, that's the exciting part about hit, and that's why it's so popular and i think it was one of the top three um most popular elements of fitness in the past five years it's been in the top three and it's been number one i think several times but um, fitness wearables i think this year won it but i think it was top three and but that's why it is so extremely popular the not only the efficiency like doc mock mentioned but um i think that um because of the fact that it's, it's extremely convenient you know you don't have to have a home gym to do it um, you can go out, like you mentioned, sprint training. You can do sprints for HIIT training. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about how to structure, you know, HIIT workouts. But resistance training in and of itself, um, where does it fit into this arena? So to talk about uh, resistance training um, and, and talking about what it means to be fit and what are the elements of physical fitness. So there are four elements to physical fitness, which we should always kind of have in the back of our mind. Because if any one of them isn't being considered in a fitness plan, then that fitness plan is either going to struggle or hit a plateau or you'll get injured or the motivation will leave you and you will probably not continue. So those four elements, um, if you hit them all, you will, no pun intended, if you hit them all, uh, (laughs) you will, yeah, (laughs) um, you will definitely be doing a huge service to your body in terms of longevity um, and reaching higher plateau levels throughout your fitness routines. If you're an elite athlete or if you're a beginner, you will definitely progress more quickly. And what are those elements? We all know them. They're cardiovascular endurance, muscular strength, muscular endurance, and flexibility. And as long as we're concentrating on all four of those and making a routine that hits all four, then we're good. Where does resistance training fit into that scheme? Muscular strength. Um, there is a significant amount of overlap in um, many fitness routines, whether you're doing a routine for strength. Um, you know, you could be getting you know elements of muscular endurance during your resistance training as well. And it just depends how you're doing that training. So uh, in terms of resistance training and where it fits, um, with what we're talking about today, I think the important thing to consider, hands down, is, you know, if I'm a runner or I'm I'm a bicyclist, you know, that's what I choose to do. Um, you know, I know that's great for my health. Um, is there a problem with that? It is a great thing to do any kind of activity you enjoy. Um, number one, it, it will be a massive lift to your health and well-being. You will feel mentally happier. You know, you. What is the problem with doing things over and over? The human body is designed to do a full range of movements. And the thing I love about resistance training is whether you're pushing, pulling, lifting, bending, twisting, you have to do all of those movements, I feel, in a full range of motion so the joints can be well and you know well moved because the body craves movement. Um, we live in a motion-starved society because of the way we live, and technology is both helping and hurting that. But resistance training, I think, when you're doing it, I, I, I've worked out both ways. I've been doing this for so long, like Doc Mock has. I can tell you this, hands down. When you are doing resistance training in conjunction with whatever else you are doing, it will make you more efficient. It will make you better at the other things you do. 
Um, you know, whether you're a runner, let's take a runner, for instance. Um, I've run without weightlifting and with weightlifting. I can tell you hands down, resistance training is a must. You, it will make you more efficient. It will make your body stronger and it will prevent injury. There's no ands, ifs, or buts about it. I'm a huge believer. Um, the energy system that resistance training uses is um, two of the three it uses most, the anaerobic glycolytic system and the phosphocreatine system. So what does that mean for all people who are not science nerds out there? Um, quick energy is obtained through the phosphocreatine system. What does that mean? When you go to throw a football, that burst of energy for your arm, that's the phosphocreatine system. It lasts from a second to about 30 seconds, no longer. It can't. It's very quick in and out, and that's it. It's quickly accessible to the body. The second energy system, anaerobic glycolysis, it'll sustain activities for a little longer time period than that before you become come into a steady state. Let's say you're bicycling, and in the first three minutes, you can use that anaerobic system until you get into that groove that people call it, where you go into your aerobic system for your energy after that. So that second system, the anaerobic glycolysis system, um, that's you know for your weightlifting movements, for those strength training routines. And when you reach exhaustion, in those, and when you when someone says they do bench press or you know any kind of uh, lift to exhaustion, that's the system that's being exhausted because it's a it's a system that does not require oxygen. It's it's in its very name, anaerobic is means without oxygen. So um, that's a little bit about uh, resistance training and where it fits in. Um, I think that if you're gonna have a routine, uh, if you're doing whether you're doing hit or endurance training. Uh, having a resistance training routine is a massive part of that. And Doc Mock might be able to speak a little bit better about uh, some resistance training. I know he's been doing a lot of that in his work, and he can tell you a little bit about maybe how that fits in for him. Yeah, so on podcast one, we talked about light versus heavy weightlifting, and, and yeah. that they really are similar in terms of your benefit. Maybe light is better for longevity. Um, in high-intensity interval training, I think we use a lot more light resistance training, but the power output is kind of what equals the playing field, right? Which sure. by that, I mean sets times reps times the weight. So if you do more reps and less weight, it's equal to more weight and less reps. Absolutely. Um, Scott in 2004 did do a study looking at specifically at weight training and EPOC, and he found that the output was very high. Um, not as high as high intensity interval training or sprint work, but higher than aerobic exercise. And so I think to put things in terms of categories for EPOC, that ability to mobilize fat stores, you should do train in different ways, like you were mentioning. Um, yeah. Probably the best way to continue with that EPOC or that fat burning is with high intensity interval training. Dexy, let's wrap up topic number one. Just summarize for us a little bit uh, what you think about EPOC and just briefly hit on on hit. <laughs> yeah, let's let's hit on hit. So, okay, what's great? Um, you know, why do our listeners care? Why should they care? Why should they care about hit training? Why is it so awesome? Why is it a, such a popular topic? You know, in the past five years, it's really exploded. Especially, um, first of all, you know. I just want to to put things in perspective when you kind of reflect on where did this come from? How did they even figure this stuff out? And it can be kind of interesting. And I, I love stuff like this, but I think it can kind of put your mind frame in the right you know, place when you're thinking about these things. Um, in Japan, uh, Professor, Professor Tabata in the early 90s worked with the speed skating team. And they developed a routine where it was a four-minute workout. It was 20 minutes of extremely brutal work, 10 seconds of rest, and they did four cycles. Well, he said, we're doing tests of comparing that with people that were doing the regular endurance workouts that they were used to, which required, you know, more prolonged endurance um, techniques, you know, um, long bouts of, you know, not as high heart rate activity, but still, you know, very intense. Um, the things they found kind of shocked them. Um, they found the gains that these athletes made were quite impressive, and they started looking at the science behind it, and Tabata was born. That, that's where the, the term Tabata comes from. It's named after this wonderful man who you know, decided to, to this day they're doing research on this and why it's so effective and how 
to tweak it to make it you know more useful to the general public. But that's where uh, in the '90s this kind of became a thing that people talked about, and then um, Hit kind of evolved, and there's even better ways to do things. So you know we're kind of reaping the benefits of all that stuff. Um, I think there's a couple things we need to consider when we talk about Hit training. Uh, I think if you want to stay in this game for the long term, like we all do. Um, you see a lot of people jump into a fitness routine and you hear all these disclaimers on websites. And I don't like disclaimers because I think that um, sometimes people can take them the wrong way, but at the same time, um, you know, you kind of have to know what you're doing. This can be unsafe in, in ways. Um, beginners have to realize a few things about hit training. If you've never trained and you are not fit and you want to jump into a hit routine, um, it can be dangerous, you know, if you have cardiovascular disease, you know, make sure that you start out with some kind of aerobic base building technique and some weight training that is supervised, you know, that's, you know, enough said about that. We all can be very, you know, common sense about that. Our family docs all can talk to us about these things and we can go there. For our purposes here and what we're interested in, you know, especially for people who want to get better, you know, and they want to improve their health and they're otherwise pretty healthy at the moment, want to keep, they want to keep it that way, or even for the elite athlete or someone who's trying to get better and trying to reach a higher level. Um, I think that hit can be extremely beneficial for both those groups. And I think one thing we can do, uh, if we're beginning hit and we've never done it before, if we have a decent aerobic base and we want to start out, um, two things you can build on, um, the repetitions or how many cycles you do and the intensity. You should never increase both at the same time. I think that's setting up a recipe for injury. Um, always, always have a warm up and always, always have a cool down. And a lot of us, it's easy to neglect. Um, I used to do it in my 20s. I'm a lot wiser now, I like to think. Um, a lot more gray hair. But, um, <laughs> you know, if, we, if I could go back and I'll tell you this in my 20s and 30s, that was one thing I, that is a thing that everybody should add is a warm up and cool down. It, it does immense favor to your body to do that in terms of, you know, just preparing the body for action, getting that range of motion in your joints. Um, things get lubricated in the joint physiologically. You know, we, we secrete certain substances in the joints and the range of motion improves as you warm up. We all feel this. We know it's there. We can tell after we work out, we, we move better. But have that in a warm up before you start. Now, when you go into intense, um, you know, um, athletic moves, you know, let's say you're doing, you know, burpees, you know, or mountain climbers, you know, these are things that really raise the heart rate. Um, you can vary the rest. You can vary how long you do the movement for. So um, if we look at the Tabata, the original Tabata was only 20 seconds and they were extremely high energy moves. Like these are things like all out sprints or, you know, all out moves that really get the heart rate going. Those, um, those repetitions, those cycles can be increased in time and the rest can be played with as well as you progress. You can increase the uh, rest interval if you feel like it's too difficult for you or decrease the rest interval. You can increase the intensity. A word about intensity, and this is probably the most important thing about HIT. I think that uh, if you're talking about intensity, realize that EPAC comes from taxing the muscles to a very high degree. So you have to put in uncomfortable work for a very short period, albeit short, it is intense and it will, it will not be fun in terms of how it feels. The benefits are massive and it is well worth it. So go into HIT realizing that. How often should we do it? That's a big question that a lot of people ask. It is not safe to do HIT more than two to three times a week at max. Um, I personally, when people ask me how I, I do it twice a week, I never do it more than that. Um, I've played with HIT training, and I will tell you this, the body needs time to recover. That 48 hours, it's the real deal. Like, your body needs it. Um, you know, we'll probably do some podcasts on recovery, but that's an, an essential thing to talk about is how many times a week that is hands down. If you can walk away with one thing from HIIT training before you start, know this, that when you start, if you've never done it, once a week is probably okay. And after you start getting used to things twice a week is probably okay. Hmm. You start pushing three times a week, you better be in great shape 
it's going to be, you know, something that you have to make sure and, and not recommend it about two to three times a week for sure, hands down, because it is intense. And as you do it, you will see um, it's human nature not to push yourself as hard as you can go. Um, I think the first few times is probably a safety thing. You know, we're all kind of in that self-preservation mode. You'll feel your body. As you get more fit, you will push. And some people are wired in a way where they can push too much. Most people are not. Most people are, are error on the side of not pushing um, enough to get the benefits of hit. But, you know, injury is a big concern with hit training. You have to be very careful in terms of warm-up, cool-down, having an aerobic base in place. I always tell people, you know, building a fitness base, you know, not jumping. Six weeks is recommended by, by I think, the American College of Sports Medicine uh, mentioned something about a six-week aerobic base. Um, other people will tell you it takes months to achieve it. Um, you can use biometrics to know if your aerobic base has been built well enough. And this might be a future podcast. We can talk about some things about building that. Um, athletes at an elite level will have an easy time um, getting better with hit. They will see massive improvements in all metrics, um, you know, and that's why athletes love it. You know, in the sports world, I think, you know, NFL, you know, all the pro circuits, everybody does hit. And there's a good reason why they know the science behind it. Um, so that's a little bit about, you know, kind of what to think about with hit training. So uh, if you were on the treadmill the entire time while listening to this podcast, next time just jack up the intensity, <laughs> hop off the treadmill for a bit, do some burpees, and you're going to burn fat while you're sitting yeah. on your couch at home. That's epoch. Fantastic. Uh, listener mail. Uh, our first listener is Livy. She asked us, do you believe in food allergy testing? Now, I know how I feel about this as a gastroenterologist. Um, you know, Dexy, we, we live in a world where we're seeing a lot more food allergens. What do you think is the reason behind food allergens? I think it's environmental. I think there's a big component of um, that involved. I think part of it is um, there was an, I, I think the old mode of thought was, especially with our youth, to not introduce them to things like peanuts, eggs early on. That thinking is being shifted. There is some thinking that if you introduce them to small amounts of that at six months, that it can improve um, their chance of not having allergies to the most common ones, which are what? Milk, eggs, peanut butter, peanuts, things like that. Um, they've also, uh, I came across some interesting reading on uh, how when people are taken out of their envir environment, migrants, especially in new environments, um, struggle with allergies, especially food allergies. And I think that has a lot to do with it. And I think um, we live in a time now, especially with COVID-19, that you can see we're crazy about all these you know, cleaners and making a sterile environment everywhere. Um, some of that might be detrimental, we might find. Uh, I think being exposed to certain types of bacteria and viruses is, you know, how we build immunity sometimes and, and definitely and in a developing immune system, especially with an infant, I think exposing them to some of these that are um, problems as food allergies later on, you know, it's, it's an alarming increase really when you look at, you know, kind of how it's happened in the last 10, 15, 20 years, even uh, how many um, people have food allergies and how many kids in schools are having food allergies. So I think these are some of the things we have to think about. Maybe introducing those foods early on isn't as bad as we thought. Um, and there's yeah. a sh shift in thinking, I think, for sure. Yeah, I, I think it's a few things. Like, number one, we're more aware of the fact that food allergies exist and how they're contributing to diseases. So, therefore, you know, we mm -hmm. are able to diagnose and hash out which foods people may have intolerances to. And then the other aspect why I think that there are food allergens more prevalently is because, you know, a lot of our foods are being treated with pesticides or they're genetically modified or they contain additives, which frankly, our bodies aren't able to identify as anything real. Uh, our, our genetics are just not programmed to be able to interface with a wheat that doesn't at uh, all exist with ancestral wheat. And so therefore, non-celiac gluten sensitivity is now a very common condition. In terms of testing for food allergens, so often what happens is somebody will see somebody like me, they're diagnosed with a condition like we have an allergy in the esophagus called EOE or eosinophilic esophagitis. And you won't necessarily pinpoint one particular food allergen. A lot of patients will then ask, you know, should I see an allergist and get tested? 
And so, you know, um, up until about one month ago, our society recommended against allergy testing for such conditions as EOE. But actually, they just did a combined document with the immunology uh, group, and and they have added it as something that you can consider when you have an allergic GI condition. Now that said, the evidence of uh, is relatively weak, and I will tell you when you get these reports from immunologists, they are not that helpful, right? Being allergic to bee stings and tree nuts and pollen and all these things, like how helpful is that? And I've had patients that say they're allergic to seafood and they try eating seafood and they're fine. So really, I think the best way is to just be scientific with yourself. Eliminate one variable at a time. See how you feel. And if you get improvement in your symptoms, then you've diagnosed an allergen and you should avoid that food. You don't need the fancy tests. The next piece of listener mail is from um, R097. And he said, does weed, he means cannabis, help with sleep. Dexy, you know, we we get drug tested. So I, we do sure. not dabble in, in cannabis. I am not anti-cannabis by any means. But what do you think about marijuana or cannabis for sleep? Yeah, kudos to this guy for asking. This is a good question, actually. And especially uh, in this time when you're seeing a lot more of, you know, CBD oils and a lot of use of hemp and all these, you know, different products and byproducts. And um, I can tell you this. Um, you know, practicing anesthesia, we see a lot of smokers. Uh, first, let's tackle that quick uh, topic. Anytime you smoke anything, if that's the mode of delivery, um, and there are other modes of delivery, I realize that for cannabinoids, um, I think that um, it's an airway irritant. I know uh, the American Society of Anesthesiologists uh, puts out a statement that we consider that an airway irritant, just like any other smoking, uh, not to mention the you know psychedelic effects if it is a THC product. But um, I think that having said that, you know, as far as sleep, um, from what I know about natural remedies um, and REM sleep and the different phases of sleep, and I love that uh, Doc Mock and Aaron Graham did a podcast on sleep because I think it's so critical and I think it's massively overlooked, although in the recent years, you know, we definitely, uh, it's been something the public has raised their awareness of immensely. You know, with blue light from phones and things like this. But um, as far as REM sleep goes and, and cannabis, I don't think any of the evidence shows us that you will um, positively positively impact your REM sleep with cannabinoid or THC products. So as far as I'm concerned, uh, sleep hygiene is number one. Once you've tackled sleep hygiene, um, Doc Mock will be able to comment. He's a big fan of melatonin. I think it's a great natural one. Um, you know, anything that doesn't affect your real deep sleep cycle is massive. Um, I think that's where you get, you know, a real repair of tissue and, you know, kind of a reset of your body, um, and the brain especially. Um, I wouldn't jump and do any of the cannabinoid products myself because I just don't think the research is there. I, I think that anything it showed so far has not been positive for REM sleep. And uh, maybe Doc Mack knows a little bit more about this topic, but I really think that, um, in my opinion, right now, that's not a kind of adjunct that I would seek. Yeah, I would say uh, for R097, I recommend you listening to podcast number three or head on over to MaximalBeing.com slash learn. We've written a number of articles on sleep specifically. If you're having difficulty with sleep, the two main categories are inducing sleep and then maintaining sleep. And both can be tied to conditions like anxiety, depression, and daily stressors. You know, cannabinoids are actually good at inducing sleep, as are things like alcohol and benzodiazepines, and by that I mean Ativan and Xanax. Um, but the problem with all three of those things is that once you get to sleep, the quality of restful sleep, or stage three, and REM sleep is low. And that is the time when you maximize the benefits of sleep, which we talked about on podcast three. So I would say if you're having a hard time sleeping, you can consider it, but there are probably a lot better ways that are natural and free that you can do that. I would consider journaling, mindfulness, meditation, and definitely avoiding blue light within about an hour. Um, But all those details are again found at maximalbeing.com slash learn and listen to podcast number three. So that wraps up our topic on EPOC. It has been a pleasure to have Dex Z here. I, I love our conversation every day when we're in the endoscopy lab. 
I loved our conversation today. Dexy, where can people find your unique content and upcoming website? Yeah, so I'm super excited. And, uh, and thanks for bringing it up, uh, Doc Mack. I really appreciate that. Um, the Pursuit of Healthy is my baby. Uh, I'm going to be completing the website, uh, getting it started here. And it's, it's in its infancy currently. Um, I'm really excited about the content. Um, the gist of it is, I believe in there's pillars of health, and many of them are being talked about on Maximal Being, which I really love. And I consider it a very helpful website. It's amazing. Uh, what you're doing, Doc Mock, is Thanks. great stuff. Keep it up. Um, at, at the Pursuit of Healthy, you're going to find some great information um, on all the pillars of health, which I consider to be first and foremost, you know, nutrition, fitness. I think they're paramount. Um, hydration and sleep, um, mindfulness, or you know, stress relief, reducing those cortisol levels, and even supplementation where it's warranted. Um, I think that's a big one to tackle in terms of um, you really have to know what you're doing. Um, so I really hope that uh, people will join me and I'm really excited to get the word out there. Um, we'll be out there soon and I'm pretty psyched about it. I really appreciate your time tonight, Doc Mock. Great stuff. I love the podcast. Huge fan and uh, keep spreading the good word. I love it. My pleasure, friend. You can also reach Dexy directly by heading on over to MaximalBeing.com slash about. You can reach any of us that way. Also, if you hit the contact button at the top, you can send us a speak pipe. We'll hear your voice. Be happy to answer your questions as we've, as we've done so now for eight podcasts. You can also have this brilliant man design you a custom hit plan, a nutrition plan, or a gut health plan by any of us at MaximalBeing.com. Uh, so until next time, Maximal Beings, this is Doc Mock here, and I'm here to maximize your pathway to wellness.